I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brian Martin, also known as Jericho. Brian has been poking around the hacker and security scene for over 22 years, building valuable skills such as skepticism and anger management. As a hacker turned security whore, Jericho has a great perspective to offer an unsolicited opinion on just about any security topic. As a longtime advocate of advancing the field, sometimes by any means necessary, he thinks the idea of forward thinking is quaint because we're supposed to be thinking that way all the time. No degree, no certifications, just the willingness to say things many in this dismal industry are thinking, but are unwilling to say themselves. Jericho remains a champion of security industry integrity and small misunderstood creatures. In this episode, we discuss starting as a freak and in phone systems, BBS hacking forums, sharing knowledge, calling people out, the cybersecurity skills shortage, understanding the adversary's mindset, PCI compliance, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Ryan, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, how are you today? Good. How's it going today? It's going great. And so Brian, also known as Jericho, and why don't you actually kind of dig back into, you know, you, you kind of have a hacker handle. I think a lot of people have had those at different points in their career, but you you actually go back to kind of an OG status, both here in Colorado, but also in the industry as far as how long you've been doing what we call cybersecurity, even before it was cybersecurity and, and going back and even to the freaking days. Yeah, um, so I actually kind of got my start in 91 on BBSs uh, when I was in college. Um, <clears throat> it was probably late 91 or early 92 when I found my first hacker type BBS and just kind of fell into it from there. Um, by 93, joined a hacker group in Colorado. Um, back then, I actually used a wide variety of handles. I would kind of change it every month or a couple months. Um, and the whole Jericho thing came around is that back then your Unix login couldn't be more than eight characters. And a lot of my handles were well above eight. So I used Jericho once and I was like, well, I'll just use that on my next account and my next. So it was the one consistent thing across me changing my handles on IRC or mail list or wherever else. And it kind of stuck. And I think that uh, friends started calling me that rather than all my other handles. That's funny. Well, also going back to those days, I mean, I, I kind of have the moments of being an old man and saying, get off my lawn to the younger kids today when I don't think they realize how lucky they are to have Google for these things. Whereas if you were word dialing and you would get something that would pop and you'd hit it and just get a blank login, that's all you had. There was no Google. You might have to go back and, and maybe look through some old uh, hacker zines or forums. But I mean, kind of walk us through what it was like back in those days when you're, you really had no other resources but friends or other colleagues in, uh, on BBSs. Yeah, it's funny uh, because I make that exact point when I, I talk about the old days and uh, there's very much that element of get off my lawn, but... Uh, I also understand that 
modern day uh, hacking is also challenging in a wide variety of other ways. So even the first year of Yahoo and the first couple of years of Google, you still couldn't really search up pretty much anything you needed. They were still early in the days of indexing and figuring out the algorithms and everything. And so what I've told people is that back then, like you mentioned, if you, uh, you find a new system on the internet, maybe it's running SunOS or Solaris or Iris or HPUX, or you find a new system that you dialed into, without Google, you couldn't even go to the library because you didn't really have a way to know what to look for in the library. And if you couldn't find it in a text file, then the last option was hopefully, <clears throat> well, if it's a local thing, maybe I'll go jump in their dumpster and get lucky and find manuals, um, which happened to us on occasion, but pretty rare and definitely not reliable. So yeah, there was a lot bigger element of unknown and um, it was actually kind of the early days of fuzzing before fuzzing became a thing, but rather throwing a bunch of stuff at input to the volume you do today, it was, oh, well, I'll try these logins or I'll throw these command sequences or these control characters. Um, and there was years and years where people, uh, they knew about these computer systems, uh, usually on the telco side, in my experience but they didn't even know how to throw the right control character to wake it up so that you could interface with it. So you compare that today with, oh, well, in the last hour, I downloaded seven different Linux distros. I've got four of them running in a VM right now, and now I'll start my fuzzing routine against these eight libraries. You know, so pretty much night and day, but like I said, different challenges today to be sure. And what, what are some of the things that you think that are the same that, you know, whether it be technique, uh, mentality, technology, there's, I've seen some consistencies, but I'm always curious from folks that have been doing it for a while too. Like what, you know, what, what do you see is the same? Um, I guess for the, the most part, <clears throat> it's still pretty easy to spot someone that truly has what we've classically referred to as that hacker mindset that has that real drive, that real curiosity. They're willing to, spend the time, whether it's hours or days, installing and digging into something. Um, I think that's been consistent over the years. And I know that a lot of people today say, oh, it's all but lost. Well, I don't think it's necessarily lost. I think the fact that we're seeing tens of thousands of people in security, some of them claiming to be hackers, is really kind of diluted the pool a bit as far as the, that old school mentality. But I wouldn't say there's necessarily more or less, just, you know, kind of a different landscape. Yeah, I've always kind of seen it as, you know, that the mindset being problem solving and tenacity, <laughs> you know, and that's, again, one of the challenges I see with some of the folks and, again, the get off my lawn kind of moment, but, you know, just giving up too easily. And I think um, – more often than not, when you're hitting these problems, you know, you're, you're often maybe finding a problem that nobody else has seen before, like that ability just to sit there and keep banging your head against the wall until you figure it out tends to be the, uh, the kind of under underlining theme, would you, would you say? Oh, definitely. And there's varying degrees of that. I mean, back in the day, uh, when I first got Linux running, I think it was 0 0.98 for the kernel. I mean, we're talking the real, when there was basically one distribution. If you wanted to tweak one setting in the kernel, you could expect a two hour recompile. 
And if it didn't work, you tweaked another one and recompiled. So back then it was literally, okay, I can't get this graphics card to work. I can't get X windows running. Let me change the setting, hit compile and go watch a movie. Come back, rinse, repeat. And sometimes it would take a couple of days to, to get something working. So there's also been a drastic change as far as that goes. Now recompiling your kernels, you know what, a couple of minutes at most. Um, but it's still that same mindset as you mentioned. Yeah, and kind of take it to the point where, you know, one of the things that I think you became uh, more, more notable for was for attrition.org um, and certainly the errata sheet. You know, what, how did that come about? I mean, that almost seems like it was a seemingly almost a graduation from old school BBSs to something that was more of a, a web page that well, was more of a web page. Yeah, and actually before attrition, I had another site called security.org with a K. <clears throat> and um, it had text files and hacker resources and, and such, um, but ultimately decided that wasn't the right path, created attrition, <clears throat> and the errata section was born out of a couple uh, folks back then, uh, notably Carolyn Mindell, who was starting to make a lot of noise in the industry, <clears throat> and she was promoting text files and kind of an ideology that I didn't agree with. Uh, I found a lot of her information to be inaccurate. And it started out basically just, hey, I'm going to reply to a mail list post and say, hey, that's bullshit or or whatever. And eventually, after your fourth or fifth or your 18th post, you're like, wait a minute, this isn't going through to this person. Let me put them all in one place and maybe see if this compendium of replies will make them see that maybe you should slow down and read more and not make such assumptions and you know, take a little more knowledgeable approach. <clears throat> and it went from one person to the next and to the next. And eventually now there's 20, 25 names up there. And it would actually be a lot more except for it's a time consuming hobby. And the people that worked on it back then, we had very little time. Uh, we all had our day jobs. Some of us had two jobs <clears throat> or we were working 80 hours or one job. So it was difficult. Yeah. Definitely. It, it, you know, there's one thing that I, I think that's, that's always kind of been interesting in the hacker community was the ability to kind of call people out. I mean, there, there needs to be a level of transparency with it. And you know, sometimes it can become a, a little bit you know, toxic. I mean, we've seen now with DerbyCon coming up in the next couple of weeks, there was, there was certainly things within inside the community that, that drove David Kennedy to kind of shy away from doing it for future years. But do you kind of see that double-edged sword, though, to at times when you're saying, hey, look, this is this is BS. This is either vaporware or somebody's just promoting something that's just not realistic to it then becoming a pylon where it ha could have some negative consequences. Sure, but those are really two pretty radically different things. Sure. So you had a charlatan back in the day that was spewing a bunch of snake oil and, you know, peddling bullshit solutions. Okay, that's fine. But... Then on the other hand, you have a conference where there are lots of allegations about inappropriate behavior and worse. Um, so you're basically comparing what I have referred to sometimes as a technical charlatan with something more akin to the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And while they are both fundamentally, wait, someone did something wrong, they are not anywhere in the same league by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so even on Arata with a newer section called Shame, uh, 
you'll notice that we treat that section very, very differently than prior ones where it isn't uh, our write-ups and citing a bunch of evidence like the technical charlatans. Rather, it is citing news articles where journalists have dug deep and gone um, to the point of finding victims or, or whatnot and being uh, on the record and willing to defend their stories. And basically, that's for uh, on our side of an issue of liability, that if you accuse someone of something like rape or assault versus, oh, you're, you just don't know what you're talking about technically, you know, uh, kind of night and day there. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's all, you know, it's, you know, we throw the word community around a, a, a bit, but it, it really is. I mean, it's having been in the technical field, not as long as you have, but close, you know, it's, I still find the, the hacker and security community is still a little bit more, uh, I wouldn't say insular is maybe not the right word, but it, there's still that that collaboration. Like, for example, today we had a Colorado Eagle Security lunch from the f- folks in the Slack channel, Slack channel for the, the people in Boulder. So there still seems to be, I, I guess, more of a camaraderie. Um, and at times, it, you know, people can fight like families and there can be disagreements, but there there really is almost seems to be more of a community than I've seen in other technical areas. And my gauge from from what you're – for somebody that's been as long longer is – that that's always been kind of a common thread that I think defines us differently maybe than, than other technical fields, you would say? Um, I would say so, but I've only been in my one technical field. So I don't really have as much perspective on say DevOps or, you know, whatever else Um, to jump back to how you originally started this. I do agree with you that there is a sense of community, but I think that it's transformed quite a bit where back in the early 90s and maybe even the late 90s, the community was referred to and kind of felt as, oh, hey, all hackers. And back then you were talking about a considerably smaller amount of hacker types in the world. And today, rather than this notion of a big community, which some still kind of maintain and hold on to, and I personally don't agree with them, I do see smaller communities, like you mentioned, the Colorado security scene or the 303 group, which is not even a group. It's just kind of a very loose affiliation or certain circles, or you see affiliations with certain conferences where it's stronger than another. People are like, oh, hey, B-Sides was fun, but you don't have that kind of um, community mentality that you might around a different con or even DEF CON. Yeah, and I think that was that was a big impetus for me even starting this podcast. Is that, you know, it was, it was funny. It was more the stuff in the lobby cons and at bars and things like that where you would talk to folks, or even just at lunch today, somebody threw out an idea, and I was like, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it that way. But that ability just to kind of um, spitball with people those ideas, and, and again, it almost seems like it, it kind of goes back to you know the, the kind of roots of, of what we are, where you say, hey, I have this problem. Have you seen it too? Um, or I have a different problem. And, and I think, you know, if I recall, you had, you had, you know, if you had a phone background, you know, somebody else might have a Linux background and you would kind of exchange stories or ideas, but that, that seems to still kind of be there in, in those fleeting moments that still, I don't know, at least still has an interest to me. Do you, do you still see that kind of core fundamentals for lack of a better word, still kind of being there? Maybe somewhat, um, definitely see it, uh, at some companies where someone will be stronger in one area or another and they'll collaborate more and focus on, Hey, since I know this, 
I'm going to try to show you more. You see it at pen test shops um, where a senior uh, pen tester will be training a junior and sharing that knowledge. Um, it was a little different back in the day, which also goes back to that pre-Google thing. So even when um, I joined the hacker group, I came up more under phones, uh, at least an interest in them and reading about them and then starting to experiment and eventually hack on phone systems. And at some point, uh, another member of our group um, who was much stronger on the computer hacking side, we basically said, hey, I want to learn that. And he's like, hey, I want to learn yours. And we kind of cross-trained for a couple months, showing as much as we could to each other. And then once, I guess, we kind of had a, a foot in the door for that new topic, then it was, okay, now I'm going to experiment more. I'm going to try to hack more. I'm not going to look at the phone systems as much. Um, so it was definitely it's kind of the same mindset and activity, but I think it was more out of a different need back then um, because the, the text files were helpful, but they weren't a complete picture. And this was also before you could pick up an entire book on computer security and would show you quote everything, which back then a single book could kind of show you <laughs> almost everything there is to know about pen testing where these days, you can be an app tester, you can be a physical pen tester, you can be more of a classic network, you can be a jack of all trades. And so there's still that need to cross train. And that's why I kind of use that as the example, um, because I do see that at some of the companies based on um, some friends I've talked to, even some of their job postings uh, that say, hey, we will train you up in this, this, and this as needed. Um, so yeah. You know, with that too, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, the the one thing we always constantly hear that there's this huge job shortage. That there's, you know, we just don't have enough people. In I've had different people on the show have different opinions about that. That it's it's either overstated or it's you know there might be double postings or there's other ways to tackle that problem. But you know, with the I guess the I would either say the sensitivity or visibility of cybersecurity in, in more organizations now. Where, where do you see our ability to kind of scale some of that talent to get more people either into the industry or cross train or take people even from other, other disciplines? Like how do we, is there, is there as much of a gap as we think there is and how do we fill that if there is? So I'm going to make a quick assumption and this is based on a lot of conversations along, along these lines is that that big skill shortage goes back several years to what was apparently one study then subsequently several news articles, and now it's just become kind of lore, is that at one point there was supposedly a 100,000 job shortage in InfoSec. And I recall at the time, I don't remember all the details, but I do recall at the time skimming the, the study of the articles and not having any confidence that that number was accurate. Um, I don't recall offhand the methodology. I would have to go back and reread it. But... My, my gut feeling based on that time and what I remember of it is, well, that 100K, it, it didn't seem to be right. It didn't seem to be accurate or uh, it didn't seem to come to that number with a, a methodology that I found sound based on what I read. So I would disagree that we have that kind of shortage. I would agree that we do have, in general, a shortage of InfoSec people, but I think the qualification that needs to be made is not so much that we have 10, 50, or 100,000 unfilled positions just sitting there, 
I think it is more where teams want to go, where a security team says, hey, we're a company with, you know, 2 million endpoints and we have four people monitoring it. We need 10 more people. We'll be lucky to get two. <clears throat> and so in that sense that, yes, that's 10 jobs that need to be filled, but in reality, they're probably not going to be or not immediately. Um, I think with that in mind, it, it kind of speaks more to a balance. Um, I think a lot of companies do not invest enough in security. And we know a lot of reasons why one of the biggest ones goes back to return on investment. Um, if your security team is big and doing a great job and you have no breaches and you know very few compromises, it's great. The team's working, but management may be like, well, wait a minute. We haven't had a security incident. Why do we need to waste all this money on the security team? You know, it's kind of a catch-22 and some backwards thinking uh, to a lot of us. But that has certainly happened over the years for, for a long time. And it's a very common story we hear across pretty much all verticals um, in, in any company that involves tech in their business. It almost seems that, you know, that, that comes down to some of those, you know, when we look at fundamental skills. And the one thing that I push for people that are, you know, kind of in those roles, of, let's say, you know, leading a security team and having to talk to the board or C-suite or whoever the, you know, people above them are, it's like, you know, really kind of honing in on those, those skills. Because it was, I think it might have been something I heard from like John Strand years ago, but it was this idea of like, you can almost do too good in a security program to the point, to your, to your point where, nothing happens and they, they don't see it and they don't see it. Well, you know, why are we spending all this money? We don't know it. And there's a lot that to be said, they say communicating what you are doing well and showing the metrics and the numbers and being able to say, you know, here are the KPIs that we measure ourselves against. And look, the, uh, the red criticals are all now yellow and those yellows over time are going to be, you know, orange or green or whatever, you know, to be able to show that progress. But it seems to be that, that almost that, that ability to communicate at, at times, is a stumbling block for a lot of people in information security. I agree. And I think one of the problems um, that you kind of touched on there is that when you say the communication, which is absolutely necessary, um, I've worked at a lot of companies where uh, the people were amazing, the products were good, overall everything was fine, except the one serious problem the company had was communication issues, even between departments or whatnot. Um, but to dig into that a little further, I think one of the, the big problems we've had for the groups that do communicate to management is that uh, the metrics we use really are either kind of weak, don't paint the whole picture, or they're not used effectively to tell the story of how the team's operating. Because you can get up there and you can say, oh, we had, you know, 5,000 attempts at, at this and we blocked uh, 4,995, okay, great, but what's the historical perspective? What, do, what does that one attack really constitute? Is that one phishing mail? Is that one port scan? Does it all blend in? You know, and so it's where the, even the numbers and the metrics you're using can be kind of, you know, counterproductive in some cases that in that meeting, maybe the manager doesn't ask you what those numbers mean, but walks away thinking, wow, they just fed me a load of bullshit numbers. I'm not happy with them and things go downhill. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, so it's weird, weird things. It's almost like we're, you know, I look at, 
you know, I've dealt with a lot of folks in the legal community who always say, you know, lawyers aren't taught business. Um, but also, I think that goes with a lot of people in, you know, very uh, disciplined areas. And I think that happens with security too. They're, they're really almost not taught the business metrics. So it's almost, you know, sometimes when I sit in these meetings, it's like technical teams talking one language, business talking to another. And there seems to be a, you know, a crossing of the communications where they're just not hitting at the same time. Oh, definitely. And that's pretty much been a, a, a burden on a lot of companies for a long time. And the weird part about it is that all along, it seems like the security folks know, hey, there's a communication problem. They're not technical. And the legal people say, hey, there's a problem. These security people don't understand that we're, we're bound by law to do this or these regulations. And every side knows what they're doing, and they know that the other side's not fully comprehending, and yet they still don't find some way to sit down and say, okay, how do we resolve this? We think that you don't understand us, and we bet uh, we don't fully understand you. Maybe let's back up a step. Maybe let's start a little more fundamentally that sure, I know what the law is, but maybe I don't understand to the, the depth or the importance or what the consequences are if I don't play well with legal. So I, I think that once again, it just goes back to communication and it doesn't help that a lot of our companies are uh, overworking their people. You know, those 40 hours quickly become 50, 60, 80. Um, and people of course just love meetings. So the next thing you know, you're in yet another meeting <clears throat> and you have to talk to a bunch of lawyers who don't get you and you have all these projects building up on you. But of course, you're not going to, by default, just say, okay, we're going to stop and take the time. We're going to make sure everyone's on the same page, even if this takes two hours. So there's a lot of contributing problems, but I don't see it as an issue that can't be solved. Uh, I think that on the surface, at least, it is very simple to solve. It just takes resources that a lot of us don't think we have. And one of the things too that I've seen this, and I, I'm, I know you have as well, because I'm leading into something a little bit. But you know, is is where security folks try to sell to the business on fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and kind of go with that FUD approach and saying, you know, oh my gosh, you know, if we if we don't stop this, the Russians are going to be stomping through our our networks and stuff. And that that seems to be a an issue I've seen as well. Uh, and it was something that that I remember. <laughs> It was, I think it was at ShmooCon a couple of years ago where uh, Space Rogue was kind of presenting on something where I guess you guys had worked together on, on a presentation he was giving, but basically about the squirrels um, and, and the squirrels and the, and the power grids and that everybody, you know, the headline grabbing news being that, oh my God, the Russians can take down our power grid in 30 seconds or whatever arbitrary number they throw around for bullshit reasons. But the reality is that there's other, there's other types of vulnerabilities and threats out there that we see more of. And when we communicate the kind of boogeyman approach, it really hurts us. Oh, absolutely. And so um, the presentation he gave in uh, the, the project he started is called Cyber Squirrel One. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was based on, I want to say it was not even a five minute, more like a three minute segment of a talk I gave with Josh Corman at ThoughtCon in 2012. And our talk back then was all about cyber war and our perspective on it and trying to cut through some of that um, fear, uncertainty and doubt and the hype around it. 
And one of my little sections, I basically uh, quickly did the research to find out that yes, there was a squirrel related power outage in almost all 50 states and pretty much on every continent. And I think back then even I attributed it to maybe not a squirrel, but an animal. My, I flashed up these maps to show it. And my point of course was, sure, you know, maybe China, maybe Russia, maybe they can bring down a power grid somewhere. I'm sure they can. Um, but two things, number one, squirrels do it all the time to the tune of several times a day. And their little army uh, includes raccoons and bears and snakes and every other kind of animal you can imagine. And it happens not just in the US, but almost every country you can name. So for the first part, it was, yeah, it's happening all the time. It's not about that. It's how do we respond? And the power companies, they have a, a way to triage to quickly get the power restored, etc. And number two, I think I made the point during the talk was, sure, China and Russia can do it, as well as a lot of other countries, but why would they want to? If they turn our power off, they can't hack our computers. And the information they get from hacking those computers is a lot more valuable than throwing some fear into the population, at least at this point. I'm not going to discount in the future that it, it will or will not happen. You know, uh, I just think that there's a little more people need to consider whether, <clears throat> at least over the binary, can they or can't, can't they? There's a lot more to that equation. Yeah, and I, I kind of remembered the collective, oh, I didn't think about it that way uh, in the room at Shmukon when, when he said that, because it, it was such kind of an obvious thing that I think that, again, people kind of latched onto the, the sexy part, but the you know, the kind of you know, the proverbial elephant in the room was, why would they want to? If they take off the power, they can't get into the computers that they're trying to get into. It's like, oh, yeah. So as a lot of it comes down, you know, and I, I think it's an underappreciated you know, element um, that comes into, I've seen both on the proactive side and instant response side is, you know, just kind of understanding your, your, I'm kind of air quoting, but your enemy, but your, whoever your adversary's um, motives are. Um, and that still seems to be a theme that's, it's been missed for as far as I can see the last 25 years is that, well, let's understand the mindset of the person that's coming at it. And either we're going to design a response around it or test it in a way that simulates that. Right. So, <clears throat> um, one of the articles I wrote quite a while back, I don't know, five, six, eight years, I'm not very good at time frames on these articles, <laughs> but it was basically, uh, do you really know your adversary? Um, this was what I would call early on, um, before or right at the start of the whole APT thing, when all of a sudden, Every hack seemed to be attributed to an APT or, oh, this was sophisticated. It must be the Chinese or the Russians or the North Koreans or whatever. And the point I made in the article was that, okay, so your organization is getting 50,000 attacks a day. How do you know which ones are which? You can't rely on IPs. You can't rely on any kind of attribution through IP addresses, uh, at least not as a defender. And then I made the point through basically a list, I think starting at age 13 up to age 57 and just kind of pick some general demographics. Oh, it's a 53-year-old Asian woman that uh, is learning to hack. Oh, it's a 17-year-old um, kid from England that 
hates the world. Oh, it's this, it's that. And I try to enumerate through basically every gender, race, mindset, reason to say, even back then, it's not about that one attacker. You're actually looking at the full range and you're probably blocking attacks from most of them and you have no clue who they are because it doesn't matter to you because you blocked it, fine. And I, I understand the fascination with going after the, the attribution, uh, especially on the more sophisticated ones. Um, there is a lot of value there, um, not just for the Intel community, uh, but for the security world. I just think that even today, there's still too much time and attention spent on that, um, trying to attribute when they should be focused more on, wait a minute, why did this attack get through? What can we do to prevent it? What, what can we put in place to stop the next one? Whether it's a shiny blinky box with lots of lights, or is it a user awareness campaign? Um, and, and just figuring that out. Um, I, I've spoken about this on and off, um, mostly on Twitter and social media, but I, I think that at this point in our stage, I don't think anyone in our industry would disagree with me that, hey, if someone wants to get into your system, they're going to get in. With enough time and resources, they will. Uh, with the amount of hackers and bad actors out there, one of them is probably going to get in at some point. So maybe as an industry, we need to stop focusing as heavily on the red teaming, because if you ask any red team shop out there, they'll say, yeah, we get in 100% of the time. Like, cool. Yeah. I did pen testing for 13 years, and I think I got in 99.9% .9 of the time. Uh, or, you know, at least had meaning, meaningful findings that would justify it. And eventually I was like, okay, this isn't really fun anymore. If you always get in, and at the time what was worse is I would do a retest a year later and find half of the same vulnerabilities that were never patched. So my pen test and report did a little bit of good, but ultimately it wasn't doing that much good. So as I said, I, I think the, the industry really needs to stop a minute and say, wait a minute, is all this red teaming doing the same good that it used to? And if it is, cool, keep doing it. But maybe it's time for a lot of these really brilliant red teamer hacker types to say, okay, let me apply my knowledge. Let me apply my awesome thinking power to the blue team. How can I stop these attacks? Um, because I think as we all know and agree, that's a whole lot more challenging, whether it's on a technical level, that's debatable, but definitely on a resource level, uh, because it goes back to the old uh, saying that, you know, the hacker only needs one vulnerability to get in, the blue team has to stop all of them. Um, and I know that that's a little more nuanced, especially today. But anyway, I, I think that that would be a, a good direction for the industry to collectively uh, kind of do some thinking on and, and maybe change some focus. Well, I think some of it that Lisa, where I've seen too, it, and there's kind of this double-edged sword with some of the things around compliance and I'll pick on PCI cause it's an easy target, but you know, there's some very narrow scope things that need to be tested, audited and assessed with inside the PCI framework. And I know a lot of the folks that have worked in that area have been frustrated where they said, well, what about all these other things? And they're told, well, that's not in scope. And it's like, yeah, but those are the ones that are uh, going to cause a, a, you know, credit card breach. So 
you know, what are your thoughts on some of the standards that go in there? I mean, if we start imposing standards, does it box us in? Does it provide guidance? Where do we kind of navigate that issue? So we'll, we'll start with your example of PCI, and it is completely worthless. <clears throat> it does little to no good for most organizations. It actually harms as many organizations as it helps. And the fundamental reason it exists is to shift liability off of the major credit card companies onto the rest of the world. Um, I can tell some stories about PCI where I was on the uh, ASB testing team and the absolute bullshit that was involved in it. And basically, in my opinion, based on my experience, I, I would consider it a corrupt organization that they are not seeking security, they are seeking compliance. And we all know that those are not mutually uh, overlapping. I think that they define that whole saying that one is not necessarily the other. That said, I don't know a lot about most of the compliance uh, frameworks out there. I know that some have more value to others. Some are very specific, obviously. Um, I, I think your entire intro basically sums up the problem with compliance in general, though. The minute you start saying this is out of scope, that's out of scope, you can only test during these hours, you have moved so far from a real-world attacker scenario that what's the point? Why are you spending money trying to do this limited hands-type end test or assessment or whatnot? What value does that really bring? So even if you show a few uh, vulnerabilities in those systems, management may have a takeaway of, oh, well, we had seven vulnerabilities, fix them, that's easy. Not fully understanding that, wait, they tested 1% of our network or even less than that for some of these big organizations. Um, so yeah, I personally, I, I think companies need to start pushing back as much as they can. And I know it's difficult to impossible for something like PCI, their hands are tied. <clears throat> But I think that those reports need to come with better disclaimers, better explanations that, hey, this is a little snapshot. And if you get owned tomorrow, it's completely because PCI failed you, despite what the PCI council will tell you. Yeah. And and that's that's you know, it was, it was obviously kind of a leading question because I've I've seen the same thing and it's it's a frustration where They've um, even inhibited some of the folks that, that have worked on the response side with saying, you know, it has to, has to be a, a, along these rules. And it's like, you know, the rules didn't really apply in the first place. And this, and this is where there's been a breach. Um, one of the things I kind of wanted to touch base on, too, is, you know, you've obviously been very active in the community as far as giving back. But, you know, doing the call for papers and for different uh, conferences, how did you and why did you start kind of you know, giving back in that, uh, that frame, because I know it's a time consuming thing for the folks that I've dealt with on it, or even done some limited myself. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not a easy thing to start looking at a lot of uh, papers that are coming in for these conferences. Yeah. And, and real quick, the, the whole CFP thing, um, th there's a wide range of CFPs out there to the point where uh, some smaller companies, whether it's a B sides or a regional, more local conference, where not only do they get much fewer submissions, 
but they aren't they aren't asking for near the amount of content. They're not asking for uh, a detailed outline or a long abstract or a paper or whatever. And you can do one of those in a couple hours in one night. And then the flip side is DEF CON. Um, I did CFP for DEF CON for five years and we averaged about 550 submissions a year over roughly three months uh, for the CFP process. But somewhere between 150 or 200 of them would come in on the day of CFP closing. And behind the scenes, CFP, we stop accepting submissions on that day. And then we have anywhere from a few days or a couple of weeks, depending on the size of the conference, to figure all those out. And so, yeah, uh, for DEF CON, the amount of time that the CFP team spends on that is insane. <clears throat> I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of hours to go through to give feedback uh, because DEF CON then, uh, and this is Nikita who does this, she basically summarizes all the feedback from CFP and includes that in the mail if there's a rejection letter. And it's incredible uh, that DEF CON does that because it actually gives the presenters an idea, okay, why was this rejected? Is it because the actual content? Is it because, hey, we just couldn't understand what you were saying? Is it, wait a minute, you said you didn't present this, but we have four videos showing that you presented four times before this. You know, there's a lot of reasons. Um, the way I got started is basically, I think it was uh, Jake and Chris who run RVA Sec, basically said, hey, we have a CFP, you wanna review papers? And it, it wasn't so much a do you want to, it was a little more of a voluntold situation, I think. I said, sure, I'll look at them. And it, it was either them or another conference along those lines, or maybe one of the B sides. And I was like, hey, wow, you know, this is kind of cool. Um, and pretty early on, I realized that it was one of the ways to, in my opinion, more heavily contribute to the community and that you're helping to shape which talks get seen at these conferences. And oftentimes you're helping presenters uh, improve their material or kind of call around and say, wait a minute, you know, this is a good start, but I think you're really missing something. Or wait a minute, your conclusion appears to be way wrong. This is why I think so. Um, and I think because it, it's not even a trickle down, it's more like a, a river that those one or two comp or one or two talks that you can really help and get feedback on may turn around and become, you know, huge. And there's a, a thousand people in the room seeing this talk. So your little action there can very quickly have a very big impact on a lot of people in the industry. And then now with the conferences recording them and uh, having those talks on YouTube or whatever, it's even more so. Yeah, there's a big force multiplier for that. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I found as much as I submit talks to places, uh, volunteering even on the back end, and there was either, I think it was B-Sides, uh, San Antonio this year, they had kind of a mentor program for folks that were giving a first time presentation. And it was really cool. To, I, I would, you know, then I mentored with that. I was working with somebody really coming up with good ideas. I said, you know, reorder this, streamline this, you know, don't bury the lead here. And it, I found an incredible uh, value in doing that. Um, and from what I heard, it went really well. And I, you know, I, I would encourage more folks and, and more organizations to do that. Uh, because I think that that mentorship role is something that, you know, is is important to have. And 
to me might even, you know, as we talk about some of the skills and other types of shortages might really actually be the multiplier that helps. I absolutely agree. And I want to give a shout out to B-Sides Las Vegas. Um, as best I know, they were the first or one of the first to do an official mentorship program between either CFP folks or people that have uh, spoken a lot before to help someone who had never uh, done a talk. And I did that one year, and I believe that they're still doing it every year. I think that's an incredible way to give back as well. And I think that, there, as you say, there's kind of a multiplier behind that, that they in turn can go help their friends and say, well, this is what I learned in the process of CFP and talking, and these are the pitfalls, and this is the value, and you know, this is what I got out of it. Um, and even while I was on CFP, you know, I still am on some smaller conferences. Um, I, I still have a kind of a standing offer that as time permits, I'm, I'm happy to do a quick skim and give some, you know, high level feedback about a talk or whatever that you, you want to do before you submit to CFP so that you present to them what should be the best that you have to offer <clears throat> where again, um, you might have some amazing technical information and some great research, but if you don't present it right, and if the CFP team can't read or understand it, they may not have the time to go back to you, to you and say, wait a minute, explain this better. Um, also, this is a big heads up to anyone submitting, and especially if it's DEF CON or even Black Hat, who gets about twice as many submissions as DEF CON does, is submit early. Don't wait until the last day. If you submit in February or March or whenever CFP opens, there's a much better chance that you will get feedback if there's an issue with your talk. And if you submit on that last day, the amount of feedback that is giving on talks goes down rapidly. Instead of us taking the time and giving a one to three paragraph explanation of what we see, what we like, what we don't like, uh, it's going to turn into now. This doesn't seem complete. This seems to be missing stuff. I vote no. Or maybe you abstain because you just really can't figure out what's going on. So there's a lot of value in, in submitting early to hopefully get that feedback loop started. And then I know that I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people on Twitter that have offered, uh, based on their experience, whether it's speaking, running a conference, CFP, or a combination. And they say the same thing is, hey, if you want you know, a set of eyes on this before you present somewhere, share it. Let, let's go over it. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, Brian, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Obviously, people can find you on uh, attrition.org. Is there other handles or other places on the Internet where people can find you? Yeah, so on Twitter, it's attrition.org, all run together. Um, I'm also one of the primary people behind Security Errata, run together on Twitter. Uh, so my feed is usually a little more personal. I also uh, talk more about uh, the world of vulnerability databases, which is kind of my thing. Uh, and then Security Errata is still kind of either pointing out flaws in the industry or retweeting articles of interest along those. And more recently, uh, sharing stories from victims uh, in our industry um, that have gone through an ordeal at the hands of uh, someone that we often know we may respect their work and had no idea that they had that other side to them. Uh, so yeah, two very different feeds there. Um, otherwise, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. 
Well, awesome. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time today. Great. Thanks for uh, taking the time and shooting some good questions my way. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.